you've been with us over the past few weeks, and then you'll know that we've been following the story, uh, this great story from thousands of years ago, where the superpower of its day, uh, Egypt, had um, enslaved and mistreated the Israelites. Uh, if, to go back even further, the Israelites had first arrived in Egypt as just you know, a hundred or a few hundred people, and they'd arrived as guests. Some of them had had positions of uh, responsibility in the Egyptian government, uh, and, and that was how it had started the Israelites being in Egypt. But then what happened was the number of Israelites had grown, uh, and the Egyptians had uh, decided that they were going to stop treating the Israelites as guests and start treating them as slaves. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelite people. They made them uh, work for them. And over time, their treatment got worse and worse. Uh, So they made them work, and then they uh, treated them um, harshly. They then uh, took away the materials they needed to do the work. Uh, And then then if you remember back, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we were looking at how they even at one point in the history set up this regime to have all of the Israelite boys thrown into the Nile and killed. The Egyptians wanted to keep them down, but, but as this was going on, the Israelites were not alone. So, so God heard their cries. And he decided he was going to work on their behalf. He was going to act on behalf of the Israelites, on the behalf of his people. And so what he was going to do, he was going to raise up a leader, Moses. And this leader was going to return to Egypt. And he was going to, he was going to go to Pharaoh and demand that God's people were released from their slavery, that they were freed, that they could go and worship God and find a land of their own. So God appears to him. He empowers him. He calls on him to go to Egypt. When Moses goes, Pharaoh refuses. He just says no. But perhaps not that surprisingly, uh, superpowers are not great at letting their oppressed people go. It's not kind of a thing that they tend to do easily. Uh, and, and so Pharaoh, Pharaoh says no. And he says more than that. He says, who is God that I should listen to him? Why, why should I do what he wants me to do? Just because God's telling me to let the people go. Why would I, li- why would I do what he says? Uh, and so God determines that he's going to show Pharaoh who he is. This is who I am, that you should listen to me. And so God goes to war with Pharaoh. And plague after plague, he brings against him and against the Egyptians. And at every plague, Pharaoh agrees. He says, yeah, okay, I'll let your people go. Just, 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 let, just give up with the plague. Just let the plague stop and I'll let the people go. And so God calls a ceasefire. The plague's end. But every time, once the plague's gone, Pharaoh goes back on his words. He says, oh, actually, I don't think I will. I'll keep them. Why would I let them go? And so the war starts up again and again and again. Until now. Until this story that we've just had read to us. This is going to be the moment where everything changes. This is the moment where the decisive blow is struck. This is the moment that the war is won. There will be no going back after this plague. 
God is going to win such a victory here that Pharaoh will have to let the Israelites go. And so God, here in this story, delivers his knockout blow. In each Egyptian family, the firstborn son is going to die. The war will finally be over. The Israelites will be free. Now, now we started this series, and we've said throughout the series, this, this may well be the single most told story in human history. I mean, it's, it's difficult to prove or disprove, but, but it may well be, because it's been being told for thousands of years. It's definitely one of the oldest stories in human history. This is the great story of rescue that has been remembered by Jewish people year after year after year after year. You saw some of that in the reading, how they were told that every year they were to remember this. We're going to spend a bit of time next week just thinking about that and why that was established. You see, this story, this story of the Exodus, is one of the greatest stories in all of history. And and, and if that is one of the greatest stories, this bit we're reading now is possibly the greatest bit of the greatest story ever told. This is the high point of God's great plan to rescue the people. But one of the things I've noticed as I read it and as I talk to people about it is we don't experience it like that. When we read this, what what seems to happen is we don't read it as the great moment of victory that it is. That was how it was remembered. That was why it was remembered. When, When the Israelites came together every year to remember this event, they were remembering it as this was the moment we won the war. This was the moment we were free. But the conversation I seem to have around this again and again is, well, what about all those innocent Egyptians? That's the conversation that people seem to want to have about it. Now, now, putting aside for a minute that God says, ultimately, there is no such thing as an innocent person, and that we actually have no information about how innocent the Egyptians were or weren't in this, to, to focus on that, I think, just misses the point of the story. This is a story of evil being defeated, of people being freed, and of rescue. Let, let, me, let me try and give you an example. When, when we remember the 6th of June, 1944, our initial thought is not, well, what about those thousands of Germans who died? That's not where our mind goes when we remember D-Day. When we think of D-Day, we don't think, oh, but how about all those Egyptians? I mean, all those Egyptians, all those, I mean, there probably were some Egyptians, but all those Germans who died on that day, that's not where our mind goes. Now, now of course, it's fine. It's absolutely fine to think of the Germans and be sad that so many Germans lost their lives at D-Day. That's fine. I have no problem with that. By all means, be sad about that. But if that's where your focus is, you've missed the point of what happened on D-Day. Because what happened on D-Day, the significance of that day was that the war was finally won. That was the moment that there was no question anymore how the war was going to end. The same is true here. By all means, be sad that Egyptian families were impacted so much. By all means, be as sad as you want about that, but don't dwell there. Rather, see this for what it is. This this story is God's decisive victory over human evil, which had set itself up against him and against his people. 
That's what this story is. That's why the Jews every year came together and remembered and celebrated this moment. So, why is it that this story was worth writing down? Why was it worth remembering at all? Why was it worth telling over and over and over again? What, what was the point of that? What, what, what were they hoping that people would get out of coming back to this story again and again? Well, well, I think it's such an important story, primarily because it shows us two things. It shows us what God is like and what God is doing. What God's like and what God's doing. That's what it shows us. You see, ever since humanity turned its back on God, we don't see him anymore. We just don't see him. I don't get to sit down next to God and go, hey, God, what's going on? Like, that's not how it worked because we turned our back on him. We can't see him. We're facing the opposite direction. We, we don't see God anymore. And because of that, human beings have become fascinated with speculating about what God's like because we can't see him. So let's just make some stuff up. Let, let's guess. Let's try and work it out. And so the more we do this, the more random kind of speculation we come up with. So we either decide that God doesn't exist. God's just not out there. He doesn't exist. I can't see him, so he mustn't be there. Or we decide what he's going to be like. He's the absent watchmaker or the cosmic granddad or some sort of harsh dictator. We just come up with our ideas. We can't see him, so we might as well just make some stuff up. But, but more than wanting to know what God's like, we also want to know, what's God up to? And what's he doing in the world? People ask this question all the time. They look around at the world and they go, you know, war in Ukraine and famine over there and cost of living crisis. What's God up to? Like, what's he actually doing in the world? What's he about? And not just on that kind of global scale. We ask it about our own lives, don't we? Certain things happen in our lives. Circumstances happen, you know, something bad happens, something good happens, something just unexpected happens. And we ask ourselves the question, what's God doing? And what's he up to? What's, what's he doing in my life? What's he doing in the world? But my guess is that some of you here today are, are still trying to work out who God is and maybe more specifically what he's doing. What is it that God's up to? What's his plan? What's happening? And this story, well, it, it goes a long way to helping us understand those two things. What's God like? Well, you see loads of things about what God's like in this story. He is powerful. He's more powerful than the greatest superpower in, that the world could offer. What's he like? Well, he's fair and he will judge evil. He is patient. He gives people chance after chance after chance. He's quick to forgive. He's faithful to his promises. When he says he's going to do something, he actually does it. There's loads of things we learn about what God's like. We've talked about these over many weeks. I'm not, I'm not going to go over them again. But, but ultimately, this story, the story that we're looking at this week, shows us what he's up to. What is God doing in the world? What's his great plan? What is it he's up to? This is what he's doing. God is about rescuing his people. What's God doing in the world? He's rescuing his people. That, that's his plan. That's his great plan for the world. If you're wondering what is God's plan for your life, God's plan is, is the plan to rescue and bring you into the new, his new world. God's plan is to rescue his people 
from the forces of evil and darkness, which have enslaved them and which are causing such pain. That was his plan here. That's been his plan for the thousands of years that have gone after. And it will be his plan for the rest of human history. And notice what kind of rescue this is. God's plan to rescue his people is a plan for a comprehensive victory. There's this, there's this fascinating uh, bit that happens at the beginning of this uh, section that we read today. Look at 11 verse 1 with me if you have it open. Because he says, after that, he will let you go from here. So that's Pharaoh. And when he does, I love this phrase, he will drive you out completely. This is, this is the kind of victory that God's going to win. When Pharaoh agrees to let the Israelites go, it's going to be so complete that he's not going to begrudgingly let them go. He's not going to be like, oh, well, I suppose I have to. He's going to drive them out. That's how, that's how complete God's victory is going to be. He's going to drive them out. And not only is he going to drive them out, he's going to drive them out completely. And what does that mean? Well, he goes on to say what it means. It means that when you go, you're not going to go empty-handed. You're going to go with gold and silver from the Egyptians. You're not going to be like skin of your teeth rescued, you know, just managing to get away before they cotton on what's happening. This is going to be a complete victory, a complete freedom. You are not only going to be free, you're going to be rich when you leave. That's the kind of rescue that God is about. And that, this story acts as a picture of what God is doing in the world. We are meant to read this and think, if this is how God rescues his people then, then he can rescue me from what I am going through. And that is not only going to be a rescue from something, it's going to be a rescue to something else. Now, for you, what you need rescuing from is not this. You are not slaves in Egypt. You're not slaves anywhere. But there will be darkness and evil which enslaves you which you need rescuing from. Some of you, here this afternoon, will sit under the power of some specific sin. Anger, resentment, greed, dishonesty, lust. I don't know what it is, but some of you will be sitting under a sin, and that sin rules over you. It controls your life. It controls the things that you think about, the things that you do. It drives your hopes and dreams and your anxieties and worries. It rules over you and it ruins your life just as comprehensively as Pharaoh did for the Israelites. Your lust leaves you sexually frustrated and unable to build healthy relationships. Your greed leaves you dissatisfied and destructive. Your dishonesty leaves you isolated and insecure. This is what I want you to hear. God wants to rescue you from that thing, freedom from it, but he also wants you to rescue you to something else. He wants to rescue to a life of meaningful relationships, contentment, security. You see, he didn't just want these lights to be free, he wanted them to be rich. That's the kind of rescue he wants for you in your life. If you are under the power of a specific sin right here now, God wants to rescue you from that, but he also wants you to rescue you to the opposite of that. 
Some of you here today will sit under the power of other people. Maybe you sit under the power of an abusive partner or a manipulative friend or a bullying boss. And maybe those people in your life, they feel too strong for you. Beyond your ability to resist, you feel trapped. The reality is, God wants to free you from those just as much as he wanted to free the Israelites from Egypt. And he wants to free you from that and to healthy relationships, loving relationships, to constructive work, to a life where you experience kindness and gentleness. Some of you will be sitting under the power of loneliness or anxiety or depression. Maybe you're battling singleness and you just feel so alone. Maybe the darkness in your mind feels out of your control, beyond your ability to resist or do anything about. God wants to rescue you from that darkness. And he wants to bring you into his light so that you can find connection, find the renewing of your mind, find freedom from those things. Now, Some of those will be true of some of you, but all of us, every single one of us in this room, sits under the power of death. Maybe we feel its power as we grow increasingly afraid, or maybe we ignore its power, just shut our minds off, but it's there and it's out of our control. It's coming for each of us and it makes us Afraid, impatient, sad, and purposeless. That's what death does. God wants us to be free, not only from death, but from the fear of death. And he wants us to live. More than that, to look forward to a life which goes on beyond our death. And so that then enables us to live a life right now of hope and meaning and purpose. What's God doing in the world? This is what God's doing in the world. He is rescuing his people from slavery to his riches. That's what God's doing in the world. That's what the story of Exodus is about. And as we see this, we see what God's doing in the world. And so we tell this story again and again and again to remind us, this is what Jesus did then. This is what Jesus is still doing now. This is what Jesus is going to do into eternity. The Christian life is not simply one where we're rescued from sin and death and judgment, but it is also one where we are rescued to his riches, to joy and hope and love and kindness. That's what God wanted for the Israelites. That's what he wants for you. Now, now, let's be honest. That rescue may not come immediately. You may not walk out of here this afternoon and be like, yes, I am free I am released from all of that slavery and I'm now free to the riches of of enjoying my new life with God. That might not come immediately because it didn't for the Israelites. They were in Egypt 400 and something years, it said at the end. You probably won't have to wait 400 years for your great freedom. I I can promise you that. 
okay? Unless there's some major breakthrough in medical science, you will not be waiting 400 years to enjoy the full freedom that God has in store for you. It may not come immediately, but it will come. And what do you do until it comes? You do what the Israelites did. You cry out to God. You cry out to God and to a God who hears you, that who has compassion on us who will one day come in power to defeat the evil which enslaves us and rescue us to enjoy the riches he has in store for us. We get to enjoy some of that as Christians right here, right now. We get to enjoy all of it on that day where we go into his new creation, the promised land that he has um, prepared for us. So, so that's what we're seeing in this story. That's why this story is so important, because we see not only the kind of God that, we, that is out there, but we also see what he's doing. But there's more to see here. And we're going to see more of, we're going to see some of this by simply asking ourselves this. I just want to ask one question, and I want to give us a couple of uh, answers to it. Uh, and the question is, why does God choose this plague? as the plague that is going to bring his great victory. Why is it the death of the firstborn son? Why not the death of the secondborn son? Why not some other plague? Why death at all? Why sons at all? Why was it that this was the plague that God says, I'm going to win my victory through this plague? And the answer to this is found by doing two things. We We have to cast our minds back and we have to cast our minds forward. Let, let, let me explain. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of this story, you will remember that right at the beginning, when Moses was born, the Egyptians instigated a policy of throwing the Israelite baby boys in the Nile. That was intended to weaken the Israelites, to prevent them from being able to resist or rebel, or to win their freedom against Pharaoh. And so why this plague? Well, because there's a poetic justice to it. What you intended to do to the Israelites to weaken them, I am going to do to you, the Egyptians, to weaken you. How you intended to make us weak, I am going to do the same thing to you to make you weak so so that we can be free, the very thing you were trying to avoid. Why this plague? Well, because God wants everyone to know that he remembers No one in this world gets to act with impunity. No one gets to do things and think, I got away with it. No one came for me. No one cared. Because God does care and God does remember. In, In our world where people have lost sight of there being a God, of there being anyone that we're answerable to, the danger is that people think they can act with impunity, they can do what they want, and they will never be held to account. And this plague is God's way of reminding us no one gets to do that. God will not forget what you have done. But we we get to understand why this plague more fully, not by looking backwards, but by looking forwards, looking forwards from this event. Because as we see God's judgment fall on the firstborn son, what we're able to do is to understand God's great rescue plan for all of humanity. Because you see, thousands of years after this, another firstborn son is going to be born. And God himself will describe this man as his son with whom he is well pleased. More than that, this son will not only be called 
God's son, he will be called, and this matters, the firstborn over all creation. He is not just another firstborn son. He is the firstborn son to whom every other firstborn son owes their origin. Now, there would be no other firstborn sons if there weren't this firstborn son first. Did I say the word first too much there? Probably. Um, This firstborn son is going to be the one who defines every other firstborn son. And one day, this firstborn son is going to be led to a cross. And he is going to be beaten and he is going to be tortured. He is going to be publicly humiliated. And ultimately, he will be crucified as he is nailed to that cross. As this happens, darkness will fall and God's judgment will come on that firstborn son. Here, in that moment, we have the true firstborn son bearing the judgment of his people. That's what's happening on the cross. The true firstborn son is bearing the judgment of his people. At the cross, God himself becomes that firstborn son who suffers all of the judgment which his people deserve. The judgment of an entire people falling on the firstborn sons, like what happens in Egypt, points to the day when the judgment of all people will fall on Jesus, the true firstborn son. See, that's why it was this plague. Because as you tell this story again and again and again, as you remember this story, you become prepared for God's great plan where judgment will be poured out on the firstborn son for his people. But alongside the question about why this plague, we also have the question about why is there all this rigmarole for the Israelites? I don't know if you've read it. You probably, this, if there was one bit that you zoned out for during the story, well, if there was only one bit, you did well. But if there was one bit, then it was probably the bit about like hyssop and like, you know, spices and lambs and all, all that sort of stuff. Why? Why was there all this rigmarole about you need to get this lamb, you need to sacrifice this lamb, you need to take its blood, you need to paint it on your door frames? Like, what is that all about? It just seems weird. But again, we understand that's the significance of that by doing exactly the same as we did with the question of why the play. We look back and we look forwards. By requiring the Israelites to sacrifice the lamb, he was showing them that they were not spared because they were innocent. No, death ultimately falls on all people as a result of our sin and rebellion from God. But God was showing them that if they were to be spared, something else would have to die in their place. The death which should have fallen on their households would have to be taken by something or someone else. And in this case, by a lamb. Now, as we think about that, again, we cast our minds forward. Because when Jesus comes on earth, one of the first things he does is he goes to John the Baptist, one of the uh, prophets of his day, and he goes there to be baptized. And as he walks up to John the Baptist, John the Baptist says these words. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's a weird thing to say when you've just met someone. But it's an especially weird thing to say if you don't know the story of Exodus. Because you're like, what's he going on about? 
But once you know the story of Exodus, it becomes completely clear what John has in mind here. All of a sudden, it makes sense. John is saying that Jesus is going to be the one who dies so that we don't have to. Because that's what the lamb did. He's going to be the one who dies to protect us from God's judgment and from death. And this time, what does John say? This time, it's not just going to be for the Israelites. It's going to be for the whole world. No, this lamb is going to die for the sins of the whole world. He's going to die to protect the whole world from the judgment which would otherwise fall on them. See, that's what's going on in this story. Why is this the great moment of victory? Well, because in it, we are pointed forward to God's great plan of how he's going to rescue all people. And I'm going to, I'm going to finish here. I'm going to, I'm going to finish by just... Just asking the question, how, how do we respond to this? Like, what do we do with this? Well, what do we do as we, as we look at this story, as we engage with how this points us forward to God's great plan to rescue people? And what, what are you meant to do with this? You know, you're all going to go home after this or wherever you're going to go and you're going to do whatever you do. Like, what are you going to do differently? Or what, what, is, what is this going to make us, what should this make us think about? What should this make us do? I'm going to suggest that what we need to do on the back of this story, it is what the Israelites did. What did the Israelites need to do uh, on the back of this? They need to paint their door frames with the blood of a lamb. That's what they had to do. And if they didn't do that, actually knowing all this stuff didn't help them. Knowing the kind of God that he was, knowing his provision, didn't help them at all unless they took that blood and they painted it on their door frames. Now, before you go home and kill your pet and paint your doors, let, let, me, let me suggest that we're talking about something different here. Because that was the provision God made for them then. Nothing else would protect them other than the blood of a lamb. Just, just notice that. Pharaoh's position wasn't going to help him here. That wouldn't spare him. It might have spared him from some of the other plagues. He might have been protected from the impact of some of the other plagues. Pharaoh's position was not going to protect him from this plague. But interestingly, neither was the position of the slave or the position of the prisoner, we're told. You, can't, you couldn't hide behind, oh, well, you know, that's just for people in government. That's not for Joe Bloggs on the street. No, your position wasn't going to help you. That wasn't going to protect you here. Having had a tough life, that wouldn't protect you against this. Being a good person wouldn't protect you. Being rich wouldn't protect you. Armies wouldn't protect you. Ethnicity wouldn't protect you. Simply being an Israelite wasn't enough. You know, he could have just said, oh, well, it's only going to go on Egypt, not on Israel, like he did with the darkness or the hail. But no, ethnicity wasn't going to be enough here. There was one thing that could protect you. The blood of a lamb painted on your doorframe. You either painted your doorframes and you were spared, or you didn't and you weren't. The call for us, each one of us, here this afternoon is exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. It's symbolically the same. We are all sitting under God's judgment. We have rejected him. It rejected him, damaged his world, hurt people who he loved. And because of that, death is coming for each one of us. Maybe not tonight, but one day, death 
will pass over our house. And when this comes, nothing else will protect you. Your money won't protect you. Your position won't protect you. Your loving family will not protect you. Your morality will not protect you. No, when that comes, the only thing which will mean you are spared is the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God has died for us. His blood is available for us. And so we turn to him, we confess our sins, we claim his death instead of our own. His blood as being enough to cover us and we turn to follow him and then we hold on to him for all of our days. I'm going to suggest we, we do that now by going into a, a time of communion. I, w- I want you to imagine the scene. It's the, it's the night, that first Passover. And you're, you're an Israelite. And you're walking around the camp. And as you walk around the camp, you look around and you look at house over there and they've got the blood painted around the door frame. And you walk to the next house and they've got the blood painted around the door frame. And you keep walking around. But every now and again, you get to a door and there's no blood on it. And you think, well, what are they doing? Like, God's told them, paint your doors and the angel of death passes over. You are spared. You are free. You are released. This is our great moment of victory. And so you go into them and you plead with them. You say, look, this is what God said. This is your moment. Your, your moment where we're going to enjoy this victory over these people who've been enslaving us for years. God is going to come in judgment over them and you are going to be spared. Just paint your, your house, your, your door frame with the blood. And they just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Imagine your sorrow. Imagine your fear as you walk around that camp and you see those houses. I, I'm going to be as clear as I can be here. I want... Everyone in this room, I want everyone in this room to be able to come up and take communion. Not because communion is that thing, but because as you take it, you declare, I've painted my door frame with the blood of the lamb. And every, every person who is not claiming that, you just look around and you just fear and you're just sad. Because that's the only thing. It's the way, it's the provision God's made by which you are spared from the death that each one of us deserves. If that's not you, if that's not where you are, then I'm, I'm sad, and, um, but I'd encourage you, don't, don't, don't bother taking communion. It's not, it's not going to help, because that's not the thing. It's not this grape juice and this gluten-free bread that's going to protect you. It's the blood of Jesus. If you know that, if you've painted your door frame, come declare that. Take the grape juice, eat the bread. If that's not you, just, just stay in your seats and maybe think it through. Uh, and um, we'd love you to do that for the first time today. So I'm just going to pray. When you're ready, if that's you, do come, uh, take the bread, take the grape juice, and then we're going to uh, finish by singing uh, of these truths together. So let me pray.